This episode's brought to you by everynowheremusic.com. Yep, you got that right. That's yours truly. So if this is an endeavor you'd like to support, please come and sign up for my newsletter at everynowheremusic.com. Every nowhere or every now here, depending on whichever way you prefer to look at it. Once I was done with my little happy dance when Steve agreed to come onto my podcast, I was faced with the one question. Why do I ask this guy? Steve Maxwell's done it all. He's seen it all. This guy is actually a legit guru. And I can't remember how many podcasts he's been on. Although I'm pretty sure I've listened to pretty much every single one of them. Including the one on Joe Rogan. Thankfully, once the conversation started flowing, I was just reminded of why he has always been a complete class apart. Steve Maxwell is just a real gentleman. And he's also extremely empathetic, intuitive, and knows exactly where to take the conversation while still addressing your questions in a way that's never generic and really points to the crux of the matter. Additionally, with my specific background, which is actually in the arts, for those of you who don't know, I work with artists and musicians specifically to help them get fitter. I had some questions with regards to the psychological aspects of being fit, and then I was, needless to say, also very curious about one topic, which took a lot of uh, crap for on the Joe Rogan show, which is astrology, something I share a passion for as well. All of this and more coming up. You're in for a treat, folks, and um, if regardless of if you're actually into fitness or not, the things we actually talk about are the kind of stuff I think are just relevant on so many levels in this day and age. I'm pretty sure a lot of what we address will stretch your uh, boundaries a little. For those of you who had any doubts about me having a woo-woo side, this is me confirming your suspicions. On that note, please welcome Steve Maxwell. Before we move on though, here is me giving you a gentle reminder again that we are a completely independent show. So if you want to support it, come sign up from a mailing list and come around to the Holistic Musician Academy who are our sponsors. That's me as well. We have a bunch of courses and mentorship opportunities which I would be very happy for you to explore. And um, yeah, that's about it really. Please welcome Steve Maxwell. Hello fellow beings, welcome to Tapasya Loading, a safe space to attempt honest, raw and authentic conversation in homage to the ancient act of stoking a sacred fire. So we're officially on tape now. Welcome Steve, this is an absolute honor and an absolute, I'm so stoked to have you on. Well, thank you for having me on your on your show. I'm going to turn the video off just to stay true to my promise, just FYI. Feel free to do the same, by the way. Okay, no problem. I've, I've noticed that well, when the speakers stay immersed in the same experience the listeners eventually get, the vibe of it is slightly different. That's the idea anyways. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I never thought of that. I've been on a lot of podcasts. I know. I don't know. It's very distracting to look at the speaker. Right? We, we get so, we're so visually oriented as human beings. So true. That our... Eyes are distracting as from what the person is saying. We're looking more at their facial features or the way they're saying things or, you know, maybe something in the background or I don't know. I, I just find it really nice to be able to listen. Same here. Uh, it's also um, interesting. There's so much information lost when people are so 
inherently focused on the visuals. There's so much information in the oral realm of things that totally gets lost uh, as a musician. It's something I'm acutely aware of. That disparity in listening skills between people, depending on what their usual point of orientation will be. May I ask you, what is your primary instrument? Um, absolutely, sir. Uh, I'm, I'm a singer-songwriter and a pianist. Okay. And uh, it's interesting that you asked that. And also multi-instrumentalist. So I play a little bass uh, and I play some drums. But uh, I went to conservatory to study singing and um, piano. That's, a, that's what I'm officially allowed to declare my main instruments. And where, where are you uh, doing the podcast from? My girlfriend... <laughs> who is my, uh, like my manager, <laughs> mm-hmm. she sets all these things up. So sometimes I'm unfamiliar. No, I, I totally get it. Well, t- thanks uh, to Teresa, by the way, for setting this up. I really appreciate that. I'm currently in a Bangkok, but I'm traveling. I'm based in Germany. I'm based in Berlin. Oh, so. Yes, you're a bit of a nomad. I'm very much a nomad, and uh, that is actually... Uh, one of the topics I would really like to discuss with you, because uh, you were one of the first people uh, who I'd been following when I started building my nomadic skills. You've been a so-called digital nomad way before it was even a thing. I heard that term after I'd been on the road for, I don't know, 10 years. <laughs> at the, well, it is somewhat descriptive. <laughs> it kind of I hate to pigeonhole myself, but uh, yeah, my my background was in fitness and sport. Oh yeah, and no. uh, but I uh, I did come up from, from a musical family. Yes, my yeah. mother played organ and piano. She uh, played in uh, her local church, like a lot of people did back in those days. Beautiful, and uh, she also played violin. And I grew up listening to classical music. Huh. But I found that I didn't have a lot of talent for music, but I had a lot of talent for rhythm. And I played drums. And I played drum all through uh, junior high and high school and was in a drum line that was quite excellent. Mm. And our band actually won the World Festival of Music first place in three divisions. Stage band, marching band, and uh, like a field show. And this was in Kirkland Hall and bands from all over the world came there. So it was a lot of fun. And we toured Europe and won many first places in marching competitions all over the United States, including Macy's Day Parade, International Lions Club Parade, the Apple Blossom Festival in Winchester, Virginia. So I had experience of playing in a Really good band. It wasn't just some ricky picky band. I mean, we were like a precision marching band, kind of military style, but fantastic musicians. And I really enjoyed playing in a, in a drum line. Why am I not surprised to hear this? Well, to start off with, I have noticed a couple of clips you've posted every now and then where you're practicing some stick work. Um, it's um, really interesting. I'm not sure if you know this. There's actually a pretty well-known drummer out there whose name is also Steve Maxwell. Did you know about this? I, I did. Yeah. When, when you Google my name, exactly three Steve Maxwells come up. One is a professional comedian, 
one is a drummer and then me. <laughs> right. So th- th- that was slightly confusing in the beginning. For a minute, I thought that was you. I thought you had two careers going. Maybe it's an older ego, you know. <laughs> hey. Quantum, quantum physics and all, you know. <laughs> that sounds uh, like right up my alley, actually. I um, didn't start out in life that way. You know, I started as a health and physical education major mm-hmm. and got school and then uh, later got into the fitness industry very early uh, back before it was a big deal we're talking about the 70s mm-hmm. and uh, realized that I really liked working with adults more than kids so I I didn't you know I was coaching and wrestling and uh, doing high school PE type yeah. stuff but I, I liked working in the gym with people mm. and I liked helping people become fit and healthier and the um, my, that was always my goal. It was never like uh, I dabbled in pow, you know powerlifting and some bodybuilding, but it, that wasn't my goal. It was more like to help people through strength training. Mm-hmm. And the, I had a big gym, and I got into Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and uh, took off with that. And I went through a, a, a breakup and a divorce, and the gym that I had been running in Philly. Everything just kind of disappeared, like an earthquake came and destroyed everything I'd been building over like, uh, you know, 20 years. I mean, mm. boof, on. Wow. And um, that's when I became very consolidated. I moved in a camper van. I'd always had a, you know, right now that's like kind of a fad. They even had a movie about it with Francis McDormand, yeah. you know, about van people. Yeah. Well, I was doing that like, you know, 20 years ago <laughs> mm-hmm. and living there, man. But then I started getting calls. I, I had made a name for myself and a bit of a reputation. And I started getting calls to do seminars that one of them was in German. Huh. And I started to go. And what do you do with the van? Because it seemed like one seminar led to another seminar, which led to another seminar. I realized I was going to be gone for a really long time. And I had this camper van sitting in storage. So I decided to sell it. And I sold it on Craigslist, sight unseen. And uh, the guy bought it. And then I had cut my tether. I had nothing. Just, you know, myself and Teresa. And we lived out of a single backpack for a better part of 14 years, traveling from country to country. Wow. Workshop, seminars. We would stay in hotels, most a lot of Airbnbs. And uh, I, at that point, just prior to that, I had discovered that you could do a lot of work online with people mm-hmm. in the fitness domain. When was this? Uh, this was all in the very early 2000s. Right. Uh, I had run my gym in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I've lived there many, many years and uh, had operated and managed several fitness clubs. Opened my own place in 1990 mm. and then started the first Brazilian jiu-jitsu school. Yes, I'm aware. Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. I was very much involved with you know, that particular martial art. You were the non, first non-Brazilian to be awarded a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, weren't you? Uh, no, actually, that honor goes to a fellow by the name of Craig Kukok. Okay, so there's some more information. But I was housing Gracie's first black belt. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the second oldest son of Elio. The they were uh, Elio Gracie was the guy that's credited with changing Japanese jujitsu into Brazilian jujitsu. Mm-hmm. And it's very popular to this day. Maybe some of your listeners are familiar with the Ultimate Fight Championship UFC. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was the Gracies that created that. Yeah, we're aware. And uh, Hoist Gracie was the uh, the young, one of the younger sons of Julio, the mm-hmm. oldest son of Elio. Mm-hmm. So Elio, the founder of Jiu-Jitsu, yeah. his oldest son, Julio, came to the United States very early. And then he had eight boys, and uh, Hoist was the one that showed the world what happens when you don't know how to grapple. <laughs> mm. Skinny Brazilian guys, you know, beating people 80 pounds heavier with pure technique. That's the dream. And that was like an eye-opener for so many people. Like, what? How's this guy doing that against these big wrestlers and karate guys and boxers? How can he possibly do that? How did how did that feel for you? Because by the time you'd met the Gracies, you already had a bit of a career as a wrestler, didn't you? Yeah. Uh, it was quite shocking to me. Uh, my first seminar, I couldn't believe how easily... Hoyler Gracie, who weighed maybe all of 140 pounds, pretty much tuned me up. <laughs> Speaking in musical terms, <laughs> I got a good tuning. He, uh, yeah, no, he really kicked my butt. And I was like, wow, this is really something else. I was a very good college wrestler. I wrestled NCAA Division One, mm-hmm. uh, 18 and 2 record my senior year. Yeah. I had uh, won uh, MAC yes. and qualified for nationals. Yes. And how could this skinny Brazilian guy just kick my butt like that? He was like, what? So I decided right there in the spot, I'm going to burn this. Mm. Uh, I decided I was going to dedicate myself because I, I was just so impressed with this grappling style called Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Mm. And uh, it also blended very nice with what I already know. Mm. It, it wasn't like what I knew wasn't good. It's just that it was just something I could add on and, you know, make an even, you know, better uh, martial art. Amazing. You talk um, often about how um, your journey with martial arts generally started off because um, you were bullied at school. As a child, I was weak. Ah. I was... Uh, not particularly athletic. Huh. That's so hard to believe. Um, my father's, you know, well, I lived in a neighborhood with mostly older kids anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was no one my age or my brother who was a year and a half younger than me. There was no one our age. Most of the boys were older and uh, bigger. And the only people my age was a lot of girls. And I used to play a lot with the girls. Sounds good to me. Yeah, and I, you know, and I like girls. Yeah, and so do I. My, but my dad didn't particularly like it, you know, that he, he thought I should be spending more time playing sport and so on. Right. So he he tried to teach my brother and I how to box. And um, I didn't particularly like striking and boxing. I didn't like getting hit. Yeah, you mentioned that. What, what, what was up with that? What was it about striking that didn't resonate with you? I just don't know. I, I, I just felt like 
I was a natural grappler. I'd want to clinch and grab people and throw them down on the ground and dispatch them there, you know? Mm. It was like a natural thing. If you notice in nature, grapplers are the predators. What's a lion do? It grabs and wrestles its animals down. A tiger can take down a water buffalo and how do they dispatch it? With a neck bite. And so it isn't the bite, it's the strangle hold. Wow, I never thought about that. They hold on to the throat until the animal dies. Mm. And dogs, wolves, you know, I mean, they do bite and tear pieces of flesh, but they mostly grapple and hold on. That is so true. And prey animals are strikers. Just interesting observation. Sometimes the striking works, of course, you know, mm-hmm. but oftentimes the predator will grab and, and hold on until it dispatches the animal. And that's basically what jujitsu is grappling, holding, wrestling, rending the limbs, strangling. Sounds very violent, but actually it's much less violent than kicking and punching someone into unconsciousness. Yep, I completely agree. But anyway, um, as a child, uh, he he realized that I didn't like the boxing. So mm-hmm. he grew up for wrestling when I was uh, 12 years old. And uh, at that time, he bought me a barbell set, which at that time, the mecca for strength training. Right. And physical culture was York, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And I grew up in a little town called Carlisle, Pennsylvania which was very close to York. And I started lifting weights in the basement. And you were 12? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a, there are a lot of theories out there about that, you know, uh, lifting um, being um, something one should wait for the right time for. Do you, you, um, but you clearly have, have a different take on this. Um, are you happy you started that early in hindsight? Uh, yes, actually, uh, because, you know, you get your greatest growth spurt for gaining muscular size and strength and power mm. during puberty. Interesting. So that's, a, that's mythology then, that, you know, not waiting till you're 18 to lift weights or 16 or whatever. Yeah, for, exa- for example, I started my son and daughter lifting weights very early, strength training, and uh, huh. my son became a world champion in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Wow, and was incredibly muscular. He he was doing amazing stuff when he was even as young as eight or nine. Really, and my my daughter Savannah, who is now um, a champion powerlifter and crossfitter, and very uh, does strong woman competitions. Mm-hmm. She was cleaning and pressing the 24-kilogram kettlebell when she was 12 years old. Holy crap. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. I mean, you know, a little girl. (laughs) Wow. But she had a natural propensity, uh, leverage, limb length, you know, muscle fiber type. I mean, if anyone was ever built for weightlifting, it was uh, Savannah. Wow. That is very impressive. I think that dispels the myth. Now, Here's the thing about kids, though. I think it's really important that they use perfect form oh, yeah. and perfect technique. And they were schooled in how to do that. Mm. And you know, 
just not like mindless, sloppy repetitions. Mm-hmm. And probably one of the most important things I think any parent can do for their kid if they want to promote fitness, it's teach them how to pull their own weight. Mm-hmm. Put a, a doorway chinning bar in their and have them just hang from the bar. So true. And, and put it low enough that they can kind of jump up and hold themselves and then lower down mm. so that, you know, the, 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 the children develop their nervous system as well as their muscular system in pulling themselves up. Wow. That's a very hard thing for average person to do anyway. Mm-hmm. I would say the majority of people cannot pull their own weight, mm. but I think a very important aspect of, of uh, athleticism and also just good hate to be able to lift your own weight. Mm. You talk about how it's it's like um, it's it's almost like a truth machine. There's um, no way you can there's no way you can actually do a pull up if if the strength to fat ratio is out of whack and uh, most people who can do a pull-up will never really go completely out of shape well it's, it's funny uh, i had a wrestling coach that says you know fat people never do pull-ups and people that do a lot of pull-ups are never fat <laughs> mm. it's like a there's a lot of truth fact- to that though isn't there there is a truth to that uh, it's the pull-up is a de facto body composition machine If you gain weight and let's say your ability to pull yourself up goes down, then you've gained fat. There is a possibility you could gain weight just in your leg and make it a little bit harder. But assuming that you've gotten symmetrical increase in weight, well, then you've gained fat if if, if your pull-ups go down. If your weight goes up and your pull-ups stay the same, well, you probably gain muscle maybe, you know, some muscle weight in your legs and so forth. Mm-hmm. So it's kept proportionate. And if you gain weight and your pull-ups go up, obviously it's 100% muscle and maybe even of fat loss. Mm-hmm. You can kind of monitor, you know, like if you gain weight and all of a sudden you find that you're losing a rep or two and your ability to pull yourself up, mm-hmm. good chance that you're probably gaining some body fat. I ask specifically, especially for my audiences, uh, most of whom are musicians and artists, and I, I train musicians and artists as well. I also find, uh, and this is something you talk about too, the the importance of grip strength. That's another thing about pull-ups that's just such a game changer. Very important. I, I worked with a woman who played in a, uh, a string quartet. Really? Uh, chamber music, mm-hmm. and uh, she played cello. And uh, her hands and her grip were very important. But also, it's not about working the muscles that you use. It's about working the muscles you don't use. So true. In so true. her case, uh, she was getting overuse injuries. Mm. And so, finger extensions and uh, re, uh, uh, wrist extension, wrist finger extension to kind of balance out. So All cool. those hours playing. I also play, uh, 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 trained a, a fellow that played first chair violin in the Philadelphia Orchestra. No and way. I had, and uh, I, I had to uh, be very careful with his hands. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we, we did a lot of finger strengthening for, those, for the fingers, the hands, 
so that he could play for hours with no problem whatsoever. Really? Where, where can I find these exercises for hand, for the hands? I have a whole bunch of courses of yours, which I um, keep going back to. Yeah, life. no, I, um, I mean, I could easily show you, you know, they're not complex or anything like that. They're actually quite simple. One would be just to take a rubber band, like a common rubber band that you might find in broccoli mm-hmm. in the production. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm assuming they use rubber bands yeah. in Europe. <laughs> anyway, you just put it around your fingers and you open the fingers up and hold isometrically and then flex the wrist back and hold it and you are now doing what i call anti-grip so good because usually you're gripping 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 just like you do a martial arts or other thing and those muscles become very strong but Mm. the if you work one side of a joint you need to work the other side of the joint and you can save yourself a lot of elbow, wrist, and finger problems by even people that type on a keyboard, like secretaries, you know, on the computer all day. They get the carpal tunnel. You can prevent a lot of carpal tunnel syndrome from doing finger extensions and wrist extensions. It just balances everything out. That makes so much sense. I feel like an absolute moron that I never actually thought about that myself because I'm always doing these grip exercises. And I never actually thought about the importance of the counterbalance to that movement. I, I, I can't remember if I've ever done the, uh, like a hand or finger extension. Thank you so much for that. Oh, well, you're welcome. That's, I, you know, that's part of my purpose to, to, to serve and, and be of service to my fellow men. I think it's really important that we do that. You know, the guy, um, one, one of the things that I, I really got involved with was uh, perhaps you heard of this uh, exercise technique called super slow i'm afraid i haven't no i haven't heard of that one it's very slow high tension repetitions the idea Mm -hmm. being that uh going slow and smooth with very uh gradual uh changes of direction in a repetition let's say a Mm push-up or a bench press or something uh is much easier and safer on the joints and it's like 10, it's, uh, when I say super slow, like 10 seconds up, 10 seconds down. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's not new. I mean, Bob Hoffman back at the old Zork Barbell back in the 30s and 40s was talking about slow repetitions being, you know, something that people could use as a little change. But uh, anyway, the guy that created this was a really brilliant guy by the name of Ken Hutchins. Oh, uh, the slow repetitions. I'm so I'm so yeah. sorry. I thought you said swell repetitions. I hadn't. Oh no, no, no. slow. Rep- ah, now I get. It. Yes, of course. You talk about this on quite a few podcasts you've been featured on too. Yeah, sure. I, I, I know what you mean. Well, now. Ken, Ken was a professional trumpet player before. You know, no way. Ah, no yeah, way. Yeah. That makes yeah. so much sense. Good book. I'm going to find it here. Uh, anyone in your podcast group that wants to read a excellent excellent book on fitness called music and dance critical factors of practice and conditioning by ken hutchins oh my god that sounds right up our alley and he talks about skill training so good thank you definitely gonna look that one up that's a really good book uh you can find it on the serious exercise website Mm -hmm. and also a fellow by the name of drew bay has a website where he sells his book and it's it's well worth having in your personal library 
And he basically gets rid of a lot of silly notions about uh, practice. So good. And, you know, and, and the same factors that you use in music as far as practice mm-hmm. or specificity and so forth apply also to any sport. Completely agree. Um, I have a saying I use, if moving fingers burnt calories, we'd all have eight packs by now. <laughs> yeah, well, that's Such a pity thing. doesn't. <laughs> it's a big myth that uh, exercise burns a lot of calories. It does Very not. Very true. <laughs> yep. Uh, that's actually, yeah, you got me there. Running and uh, oh, walking and you know, doing all this stuff, you're, you're, you're really burning a pitiful small amount of calories. So trying to exercise body fat off is always a mistake. It's a treadmill to nowhere. <laughs> yeah, sounds about right. A very, very poor use of one's time. If one wants to reduce the amount of body fat, they need to diet. There's just no way around it. And you got to be hungry. Mm. You're going to be hungry. If you create a caloric deficit, you're going to be hungry. And I, I can't believe how many people fear being a little bit hungry. I know. They really panic at the idea of feeling hunger. Yeah. It's almost like they just have no willpower whatsoever. Interesting. I don't get it. You know, I don't because it's, you know, it's not that big of a deal to feel hunger. I mean, and you can always drink a big glass of cool water or, you know, have a tea or something, you know, with no sugar. But isn't intermittent fasting a fad now? Isn't there, aren't a lot of people into that? Yeah, yeah. Although, you know, in all the studies, uh, it seems that, you know, people don't get, uh, people that eat breakfast lose actually more fat than people that do intermittent fasting. I mean, Alan Aragorn kind of blew the lid on that. In other words, there's no real advantage to intermittent fasting over eating an earlier meal or a breakfast. But for many people, it's a very easy way to create a deficit and organize their meals so that they're not overeating. So, you know, if it's working, I'm not saying it doesn't work. I'm just saying that it's just one of many ways. I mean, if you look at every diet, they all work the same exact way. They create a caloric deficit. Calories in versus calories out. The law, the second law of thermodynamics. There's no escaping that principle. Yeah. And, you know, yes, I understand there's hormonal considerations. And, you know, a lot of the food has been, you know, overprocessed and mm. ruined, you know, with all sorts of toxic chemicals and, you know, chemical fertilizers and, and spray, you know, poisonous sprays and, you know, whatever. Have, but you can avoid some of that, a lot of it, not all of it. How do you watch your diet when you're traveling, Steve? Well, we would shop at local shops, produce stands and so forth. Mm-hmm. And, you know, buy fresh produce and, you know, find local meats. And we would always try to rent a place with the kitchen. Nice. Where we could do some primitive cooking, you know, not, nothing fancy. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I would eat in restaurants, but I'd be very picky about what I would eat. Right. And, you know, I, I, I eat a, like a, a moderate to low carbohydrate diet. Mm-hmm. And you usually meat, chicken, fish uh, are pretty easy to find almost anywhere. And, you know, cooked vegetables. 
salads are not hard to find. What about switching time zones, though? Does that, do you notice that ever taking a toll on your routine? Oh, that that was that was very hard. I, I'll tell you what was the hardest was flying. Mm. The electromagnetic field of an airplane is really hard in the body. The struggle is real. And I would use I would use shielding devices. One thing I do, I wear a shungite pendant. Huh. And shungite is a mineral found in Russia from a meteor that crashed into the Earth millions of years ago. And shungite has the ability to help shield and absorb electromagnetic waves that enter the body from, you know, radio waves, Bluetooth, TV, you know, internet, high tension wires. I mean, you know, wires in the wall. This iPad I'm speaking on right now. Yeah, you're always being bombarded with these electromagnetic fields. Oh yeah, you can uh, you can help mitigate some of it, not all of it, but a lot of it. Shungai, um, Shungai, yeah, S H U N G I T E. Shungai, oh, I'm definitely gonna have to look into that. Oh, the the, the struggle is real every time I get off a flight. I mean, it feels like my recovery period's also getting worse. It used to be. 24 hours now it's almost 48 before I'm myself again yeah no this happens as, as you begin to age and get a little bit older mm. uh, we'll have to start making adjustments for their age I'm 70 years old now which is un- unbelievable by the way when one sees you you'd kick the regular 20 year old ass any day <laughs> well I'm a mere shadow of my former self but uh, you can keep a pretty high level of fitness well into advanced age if you eat well and continue to exercise strength training being number one a lot of people get it backwards yep so with you yeah thank you so much for saying that well your mobility your ability to move is your ticket to freedom Mm. when you lose your mobility you are no longer free you're a prisoner of your body you can't move meaning you can't drive you can't walk you can't climb stairs you can't pick up your grandkids you can't easily get up and down off the floor Mm. and you start using a cane or a walker or you know god forbid a wheelchair you're you're bound so keeping one's mobility is the number one priority as you age and how do you do that strength keep the muscles strong yeah if the muscles become withered and weak you're going to lose the ability to locomote you won't be able to climb stairs you won't be able to squat Mm -hmm. yeah stretching mobility you know walking and stuff like that is very good for the health but number one, everyone needs to be strength training, at least a minimal. I say once a week is good for a lot of elders. Yeah. One good strength training a week. You don't need to do, you don't, you do not have to become a gym brat. Hard relate. I, I see that my, um, my mom, she's 76 now. She used to be a dancer. Uh, like an Indian classical dancer, a number of South Asian heritage, and uh, which is kind of uh, inherently related to yoga in a lot of ways. And then she had a hysterectomy in her uh, late 60s and uh, she struggled a bit and um, had a knee injury uh, a year back. And it's been such, I think the toughest thing she struggled with is to realize that the one thing that is her way out 
at this point is the one thing she never really realized was the most important, which is strength training. So all her life she's trained mobility, she's trained flexibility, she's trained, watched her diet and, uh, you know, never smoked a cigarette in her life. Uh, but um, the strength training is something no one ever actually got her privy to and the role it plays with aging. Well, it's, it's like the fountain of youth. And a lot of people don't realize that. Yep. That you know, most dancers have a pretty short career, mm. very short. True, it's hard. Uh, one of my clients, I visited this guy, he followed me. I, I do a lot of online personal training yes. Zoom yes. sessions. I know, I, I realize you can do a lot mm -hmm. uh, online, but anyway, this guy was the uh, the physical therapist and head trainer for the uh, Canadian National Ballet Company. Mm. Uh, he had his dancers doing extensive strength training, but he was telling me that the average career length for a professional ballet dancer is about three, four years. Yeah. It's pretty hard. It's brutal. It's shorter than an NFL pro football player. Yeah. This is actually a good time to tell you how I found you, Steve. Like I've been following your work for almost seven years now, like pretty intensely. I've quite a few of your courses as well, which I've uh, really studied to the best of my abilities. But um, finding you was uh, one of those Google... Uh, accidents. <laughs> accidents, the word. So here's the thing. Due to my South Asian heritage, I grew up doing yoga, right? But... Uh, Mostly through intuition, for me at least personally, I don't want to speak for anyone else, I noticed that at some point it, it wasn't really working the way a lot of purists say it's supposed to. For one, I lived in a cold country and uh, contrary to what people say, yoga can be very injurious. Oh, yeah. yeah. Extremely. Uh, and uh, Perhaps. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean it. No, 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 not at all. No, just... Um, let me tell you though how I found you. Uh, and at some point I got into lifting because I was well, strength training really, including um, using uh, external weights. And I noticed how that would help me a lot in a way yoga wasn't. I was kind of doing this in the sly because a lot of the cultural milieu I grew up on, around would be like, oh, you know, only toxic males lift weights. Like, you know, I'm exaggerating now. Exaggerating now. Except... I'd keep oscillating between two parties, like one who'd say, oh, you can't lift weights, man. You got to just keep doing the yoga. And then there'd be the other guys at the gym who'd be like, why you do yoga? Isn't that something girls do? And this was a very different time. I'm talking about, what, 15 years back or something. At which point I had to like start, uh, I was at a point where this can't be it. I mean, it when I look at a lot of traditional martial artists or a lot of people or even wrestlers in the past, they were very mobile and very muscular too. So they can't have been doing only one of these modalities, which is when I started Googling these things. And you have an interview out where you, um, and I can't, I, I, can't, I can't remember at this point, I've, I've watched so many podcasts of yours now, I can't really remember what it's called, uh, where you talk about this, where you talk about uh, Indian wrestlers and their workout routines and how some of it is actually very sloppy and needs a lot of editing. And that's how I found you. Well, in the traditions of the Mysore Palace, mm -hmm. yoga was like an extension of wrestling. Exactly. And the original yoga was about eight poses. If you go to the Mysore Palace where yoga originated in India. Thank you for saying that. You'll find that... The original yoga was eight poses, mm -hmm. 
And it was primarily to prepare the body to sit in meditation. Exactly. Comfortably. Mm-hmm. And, you know, align the spine. Right. It was only later that uh, I believe was a Krishna Maturya started, you know, creating what is known as the modern Hatha Yoga mm-hmm. today. As uh, it was part of the Indian nationalism, you know, when they wanted to break free of Great Britain and all the colonists and all the stuff going on. You're very right. It was all part of a modern movement to get the Indian youth fit. Yes, you're very right. And then you had off branches, some of his students, like Patavi Joyce, creating the Astanga Yoga, mm-hmm. which was basically geared towards teenage boys. Oh, it, it wasn't so really for uh, adults. No, no, it is. He had offices like Bikram and the hot yoga. Yeah. And of course, he's gotten himself in a bit of um, hot water. Indeed. <laughs> hot yoga water. You know, some of the uh, accusations, you know, about misconduct and such. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway. Oh, and then you had Iyengar that used props and things yeah. like this. In gentle form. And all of these things can be quite good. I've studied with some high-level yogis. Mm-hmm. Maybe you've heard of Andre Lapa. Um, he was the one to popularize the dance of Shiva, the energetic dance of Shiva. Oh, wow. He, he was a robotics engineer in the old USSR, quite a fit fellow. Set a, he set the USSR record for swimming underwater while holding his breath, talking of breath control. and Whoa. This is before Wim Hof and these other breathologists, this guy was practicing breath holding underwater while swimming. But uh, anyway, Andre Lapa created this awesome dance of Shiva from studying the statues at the old Hindu temples Hmm. and looking at the different poses. and, And he came up with this amazing dance of Shiva. Check it out. And he also teaches uh, uh, universal yoga, he calls it. And then another fellow by the name of Shandor, Shandor Ramita, he was, uh, I believe, a Serb. Mm-hmm. And he created shadow yoga. What is shadow These yoga? Shadow yoga. You gotta check it out. This guy is kind of like the the teacher that teachers go to. (laughs) When a yoga teacher has gotten to about as high level as he can, he goes to Shandor. So like the Steve Maxwell of yoga. Uh, (laughs) Well, uh, he's definitely a very interesting fellow. And I I, I had a chance to to study with him and learn a lot of really good stuff. And I would recommend anyone do it. But my point was this. Yoga is good, but as you found out, by itself, it is not enough. Yeah, there's a lot of missing links which never actually made it out to mainstream media. A lot of links. And my, uh, are you familiar with a uh, type of body work called rolfing? Yes, vaguely. I've never actually tried it, but I know of it. It was created by a biochemist, uh, Ida Rolf, Mm -hmm. who had a son who had polio back during the 50s polio epidemic in the United States. 
Mm. And this poor kid was twisted. His legs were twisted. Mm. And she took him specialist after specialist. No one could do anything. Out of sheer frustration, she actually went in and started molding and massaging the legs to straighten them out. And lo and behold, she discovered that the human body is very malleable especially younger people, but even older people, mm-hmm. it's, it's moldable. You can actually move connective tissue around and realign people. And this kid went on to be a very strong, robust young man. He was my rolfer. <laughs> because he organized the techniques and even created a style of this body work. And they're incredibly well-organized and, you know, uh, Rolfer, it takes three years to become certified in Rolf. Rolf. It's not like a weekend massage course, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, my Rolfer, I, I discovered a woman in Philadelphia, a really good Rolfer. It was her son that played first chair in the, the uh, Philadelphia Orchestra, by the way, uh, and oh, violin. Yeah. Gotcha. She used to send me her clients because she knew I wouldn't hurt them and cause injury. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, if you lift the weight stupid, you can get hurt. Yes. But anyway, she told me her best customers were uh, yoga people, always hurting themselves, especially hot yoga. I know, yeah, right? Because you get that very artificial flexibility from the heat. Mm-hmm. And people have a tendency to overstretch the yeah. connective tissue and hurt themselves through the hot yoga. It's a little like the spiritual world's little dark secret. Like, people don't talk enough about how many injuries your yogis often deal with. It's as bad as martial arts. It's pretty bad. Yeah. However, yoga could be used as a strength training tool, and I have used it. Right. Because traveling as I did and becoming a minimalist, I literally, all my possessions fit in one backpack. Yes, I know. I read that article where you talk about one back travel. I've, I've read it multiple times, actually. And, and not like one of those hiking backpacks. This was actually created specifically for air travel, you know. It's a Tom Bin, right? A Tom Bin bag, yeah. yeah. I remember reading about I, that, yeah. And uh, it was the... Uh, smaller of what they call the aeronaut and it was really cleverly designed awesome and uh, because I had all my possessions in this bag I didn't want to be equipment dependent for my workouts including barbells dumbbells kettlebells uh, machine training mm-hmm. you know so I did have a little bit of kit in my bag but it was like just a suspension trainer that I actually made myself out of a climbing cord, you know, like a paracord. Mm-hmm. And I would do yoga mixed with body weight training. And if you think about it, like a Hindu push-up, for example, what we call Hindu push-up uh, is, is called a, uh, a dand, D-A-N-D. Right, right dand, exactly. Uh, that's basically yoga. That's a you know that's an Indian wrestler exercise, and Absolutely. you do this slowly and smoothly. Absolutely. But even more, if you hold the position for a length of time on each pose, you can get a significant isometric workout. Bingo! Just try holding warrior pose for like a minute and a half to two minutes. 
Yep. Totally or try uh, even harder, the crescent lunge, where your heel is off the fore and the back with the upper, with the front thigh parallel to the fore. Just try holding that. Or try holding a deep chair pose for like two minutes. Brutal. You get a significant amount of muscular overload. Oh, hell yeah. I've tried that a few times. The only thing you miss, though, is the pulling. Yep. But at the Mysore Palace, they actually showed pictures of people with ropes attached to the wall. Really? Doing pulling exercises. Wow. And in classic Indian wrestling, Kushti, they would have ropes and various apparatus around for pulling. Yes. As well as the, you know, the dons, which is up, down, dog. Right. And, you know, they would do a squat called uh, the thack, which is basically a, a form of chair pose. Mm-hmm. And then they would do a wrestler, uh, a wrestling bridge. It was like the, the, the royal court of Indian wrestling. It's basically yoga. It is. So, yes, one can get a tremendous strength workout from yoga. Holding a handstand is part of advanced yoga. True. You get an amazing tricep shoulder workout. Ask any gymnast. Oh, yeah. And if you can build up to the point where you could do a push-up or two from a handstand, oh, yeah. you'd be very, very strong. And yes, you can build muscle. But you'd have to make it more strength-based. Thank you so much for saying that, for busting so many myths as well. I I, uh, I actually had a videotape, a very humorous videotape of a, uh, a Vietnam vet, a Marine, who got into yoga after after his service in Vietnam. But he mixed it with bodyweight calisthenics. Huh. And uh, wow, this guy was really buff. Yeah. And he would have a lot of, uh, he would do a lot of uh, push-ups and so forth as part of his yoga routine and, you know, squats. And I advocate people do everything really slow. Just try doing a push-up one minute up and one minute down. <laughs> and tell me if you haven't got a really excellent strength training workout. You know, you start at the bottom and crock it. And, you know, one, 60 seconds up. You can count breaths if you don't want to time it with the timer. But just count 60 breaths up, 60 breaths down. And you get a, a tremendous cardio workout as well, you know, heart-lung workout. That's actually such a musical approach, I mean, if you think about it. Well, I use a metric of myself for my workout. No way. Amazing. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, a 60-second metronome. Fantastic. And uh, I, 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 I listen to the tip. Talk is very meditative, and I like to uh, really slow repetition cadences, you know, and really make the muscles ache and burn and mm. and work. And you know, I even to this day, uh, because I'm involved in jujitsu, where you know mobility, flexibility is involved, I still like to do uh, a lot of yoga poses. Amazing. As a matter of fact, while we're talking, I've been stretching the whole time. <laughs> I, I believe you. Uh, that doesn't surprise I, me at I, all. I, I have a little table as a waist high, huh. and I've been put, put on the table and stretching and turning various ways and, you know, working the groin and the hips. 
I do a standing pigeon with my leg across the table. And <laughs> do you ever not move, Steve? Uh, well, I think getting up and moving is very important. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they, they, I, I've made this claim myself, but I'm not sure it's true that chair sitting is the new smoking. Yeah. That one of the, the worst aging yeah. activities or non-activity that you can do is sitting on a chair. I, I do believe that chair sitting probably is not good for you because of the way, the, the shape of the chair. It shortens your hamstrings, shortens your hip flexors, and there's a tendency to slouch forward and give your forward head mm-hmm. in kyphosis. And unfortunately, in music, you're forced to sit a lot. A lot, yeah. You know, if play a string instrument or something. Yeah, or worst, uh, worse, uh, if you're a pianist. Pianists and drummers have it the hardest, I think. Yeah, I think so. So you have to do things to counterbalance all that. You have to do postural exercises. Mm. And a very simple one to prevent kyphosis, which is uh, that hump that you get in the upper back and the, 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 the head. Mm-hmm. You know, that's people with forward heads so bad that their head enters the room before the rest of the body, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's really bad. Uh, you can lay on the edge of your mattress or your bed with your upper body kind of hanging off. Uh, mm. The edge of the mattress should run right across the shoulder blades. And then you just kind of open your chest and just let your head hang down. It's almost like, uh, like, are you familiar with the goddess pose? In, yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's like, you can do the same thing with a couple of yoga blocks, you know, you, you can do like a goddess pose on the edge of your bed. Oh yeah. I do that pretty often actually. Yeah, no, that's yeah, really just open upper neck and back so that you don't get that, you know, and also standing up against the wall with your heels Oh, yeah. Tailbone, yeah. shoulder blades, and head. And then just lengthening the spine oh. and just getting long and just do that periodically throughout the day will mitigate a lot. But anyway, what they found was they've looked at modern hunter gatherer tribes huh. that are still living like our Paleolithic ancestors, yeah. still subsistence hunters. Huh. And they looked at their sitting habits and they sit 10 or 11 hours a day. Really? Yeah, just as much as modern humans do. But they sit on the ground. Okay. They kneel, okay. they sit, they mm. sit cross-legged, Indian style. Mm. Uh, they'll, they'll sit in uh, what we call a Z-sit, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. With, um, they'll sit with their legs straight out, with their back supported against, you know, something straight, like a, like a staff pose. Mm. Or sit with a leg. Or yeah. sit... Uh, kneeling with their buttocks and their 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 heels, yeah, like that, or even with their toes curled under, like um, Seiza mm-hmm. pose, mm-hmm. yeah, and they'll just you know shift back and forth. And then, apparently, in the study of these primitive peoples, they would get up quite frequently and go do a task and come back and sit, and then get up and you know move around and sit back down. You know, so they were getting up every hour of the hour, you know, moving for a few minutes and going back to, you know, scraping hides or grinding, uh, you know, like wild grains or food preparation or maybe making weapons like flint napping or making, you know, bow and arrow or a spear or whatever they were working on, you know. Mm-hmm. 
like that. Right. So, you know, modern humans and primitive humans sit about the same amount of time, but the difference is modern humans don't get up and move, and we're sitting in chairs as opposed to the ground. So it's not the what, it's the how. Yeah, I mean, if people can get down to the floor, if they, if they, you know, have a nice soft carpet, do it. Or if you are on a sofa or something, you can sit cross-legged or kneel or just keep moving around, you know, mm-hmm. uh, various positions. Mm-hmm. And we find that uh, this will really mitigate a lot of the, uh, a lot of the, uh, uh, the ill effects of mm-hmm. just sitting in the air for hours and hours and hours. One of the things I find most fascinating about your work, your body of work at this point, is the incredible amount of depth in your research and the manner in which you bring them across to your students and clients. And it's very evident that, you, you know, you, you're not just thinking only in the terms of the human body. You've thought beyond. There's also, um, correct me if I'm wrong, that like the, 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 there is a very strong intellectual aspect to it, a very strong spiritual aspect to it as well. At least, I mean, for lack of a better term, I'm not sure which word you would use. But it's all it's a very 360-degree uh, kind of an approach to the entire thing as opposed to just, okay, here you are, flesh and bones, and here are your calories, burn these, work work on that. How, how did that come about, especially at the era you started your career off in, in the so-called fitness uh, industry? Um, it wasn't as common, was it? No, not at all. As a matter of fact, um, the fitness industry is pretty much stuck in the body. Yeah. And most the influencers out there are egotists mm. and extremists. Yeah. And, you know, it's assumed that because a guy has big G-Riz muscles and uh, high definition, like a ripped six-pack, mm. that he must know what he's doing. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And the truth of the matter is, a lot of times, a person would be better off doing the exact opposite of what those people do. So true. Because you can get hurt following stupid exercise advice and just because a person happens to look great in their 20s or their 30s does not mean they have any clue about what they're doing so true so true many people would look good even if they didn't train at all wait wait hang, wait up how does that work though oh i saw a guy i'll give you an example i saw this pharmacist like at a uh, I happened to be shopping, uh, looking huh. for shoelaces. Okay. But I saw this This guy was built, man. I mean, his forearms and arms and shoulders and chest were quite muscular. His stomach was quite flat. Huh. I said, and I just mentioned to him, he was out from behind the counter, um, maybe on his break or something. And I said, wow. I said, You're, uh, I said you, you, you look very athletic and strong. What do you do? And he said, nothing. Huh. I said, really? He says, yeah. He says, I've always looked like this. There are some people that just look good no matter what. Yeah, I do have one, that one friend who actually fits the bill exactly the way you described it. That's true. He actually says he can't go to the gym because apparently he swells up so bad it, it he finds it embarrassing. Yeah, there are people that are just naturally, and, and, and most of it's genetic. Very true. Think of it this way. If you went to a, uh, a shopping mall anywhere in the world and sat there for a few hours observing people going up and down, mm-hmm. 
and you looked at height, you might see someone really tall, like a basketball player, yeah. maybe well over six foot, yeah. even approaching seven foot. You might see that. Yeah. It would be very rare. And then maybe you would see like a really short little guy, almost like a midget. Mm. Maybe. But most people would be of an average height. Yep. Well, that's the same exact percentage probability of having big muscles. Mm, yeah. Same as height. Some people have the propensity for gaining a lot of muscular size and strength, and we assume they know what they're doing. But no, they just have great genetics. How do you suggest younger generations deal with this reality in an age where everyone, you know, is so caught up? It's in... tough because everyone is just so brainwashed. I know, like, it's like you're nobody if you don't have an eight-pack on Instagram. It's, it's, almost like a, uh, it's almost like a disease. And one would assume there's millions of people out there that had these fabulous physiques and bodies. Exactly. When in reality, most of the people that do are, are on the social media. It's a very small percentage. So true. Very, very small percentage. You know, so most true. of us do not have the genetic propensity for big G with muscles. But my point of the whole thing was this complete this complete uh, emphasis on this flesh sack, mm -hmm. this body which will die mm -hmm. and disintegrate. Every breath we take, we're getting closer to our death. Mm -hmm. People forget why they're really here on this earth. So true. They forget that what we're really here to do is to develop our almighty soul. Mm -hmm. And I don't care what religion or whatever, it's not particularly religious, Everyone forgets that we have an energy body as well. So true. We all put off an electromagnetic field ourselves. So true. Which is, is identifiable as a fingerprint or your iris in your eye. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like snowflakes. There's mm -hmm. billions of them. Yet every snowflake is just a little bit different. Just as we are an expression of the one in individual form, like snowflakes. So true. And these were surrounded by a measurable energy field, several, several layers of teaching yoga. And this energy body is very important to develop as well. You do that through visualization and meditations and you know, wow. breathing exercises. Mm, thank you so much for saying that. Sorry I interrupted one of the best exercises I've ever learned mm -hmm. is a simple exercise. It's hard to do in that you have to really concentrate, but it's called the pulling down exercise. Oh. And, and you imagine a funnel in the top of your head, and you pull energy from the heavens downward through the fine energy channels of your body, what the Chinese would call meridians, I don't know what they call them in yoga. I know about marma points in yoga. I think they're called chakras. Chakras. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think so. The English word for chakra is vortex. Yeah. And you pull this energy down through these fine energy channels. And mm -hmm. It's pulling downward towards the earth, right out through the soles of the feet. Mm -hmm. So the energy is coming 
from the heavens through the top of the head, down through the body, through the fine energy channels, out your fingertips, down your legs, and this continual pulling down is very, very powerful for energizing the body, mm-hmm. fine-tuning these fine energy channels, and keeping the energy body very strong and intact. Mm-hmm. It's simple, but difficult. Makes so much sense, though. I do it when walking or doing a light jog. Nice. And I'll practice breath work while doing it. Yes. One of my favorite, uh, because I was raised Christian, and I do believe in Jesus Christ, Mm -hmm. I believe in him as a a great guru, Mm -hmm. a great teacher. I would tend to agree. You know, know, I lost my faith for a long time. I I just completely abandoned it because... Really? And I grew up with was kind of a toxic Christianity, I thought. And... uh, Mm. I read a very interesting book by a yogi who brought me back to Christianity. It was written by Yogananda. Oh, yeah. This, uh, the Second Coming of Christ. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that one. I think I read that one, yeah. And he talked about the yoga of Jesus Christ. Yeah, because Jesus in India is also considered to be a prophet, even in Hinduism, actually. A lot of people don't know this, but Jesus is considered very much a legit prophet in Hinduism, too. He was a yogi. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, absolutely. He, you know, if you really look at what he said, he was saying the same thing they say in Buddhism and Hinduism and, you know, a lot of cross. Yeah, I would tend to agree. At any rate, that's kind of brought me back to Christianity, you know. And um, Yogananda even talks about uh, how Jesus meditated. Right. It's real interesting. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, when I go out, I'll say the Jesus prayer, which is an Orthodox prayer. Mm -hmm. It's really nice for getting rid of your own ego will and allowing the universe to enter you. Mm -hmm. And it's, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, please have mercy upon my soul, a poor sinner. That's the long Mm version. But when I run, I'll inhale and say, Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. And so I'll inhale on three steps and then exhale on five so that I'm always inhaling on the opposite foot. So I'm not always inhaling on my left foot or my right foot, which can kind of make you one-sided. Interesting. That's actually a, 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 very much a yogic exercise. I mean, there, there, I'm not an expert on this, so I should, be, I should be careful what I say. But there are these uh, specific principles on which foot to use to take a specific step in coordination to which nostril you're inhaling or exhaling from. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I, I've always believed this. Yeah. Or, alternately, when I'm out walking or jogging, mm-hmm. I'll just on... On the exhale, I'll just say more love, more love, more love, or love, 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 love being the highest energy on the planet. Mm. Or sometimes I'll say more God, more God, more God, bringing God energy down through the top of my head, through the fine energy channels and up the Very powerful. And you really do go into a zone. Yeah, yeah. You're so concentrated on the movement, the breath, and the mantra that you pretty much are not worrying about this or that and thinking of all this other nonsense, you know? Mm-hmm. You clear all these negative thoughts. 
Here, here's a question, Steve. I mean, you're like this super badass dude who probably has hung out most of his life. At least spent a lot of his life around more badass dudes, many of whom would tend to scoff at approaches like these. How have you struck that balance between the, your masculine and feminine? Uh, just by being an example, you cannot preach or, you know, like, I've never been into activism, for example, going out and protesting and this and that and the other thing. Mm-hmm. I feel like you can't really influence anyone that way. Mm. You cannot argue with someone and change their point of view. You can't. Just the very nature of arguing is a meaningless waste of energy. (laughs) I think it's very important to be an example. You can only lead through an example. It's so much easier to just argue, isn't it, though? Yeah, I mean, you know, by becoming a kind, loving person yourself. Mm. Now, I haven't always been. Uh, you know, there was a time when I was a real bastard. <laughs> yeah? Uh, yeah, I wasn't a really nice person. It, could, uh, we t- could we uh, talk about that? I, I just was very temperamental, you know. I think I had a lot of uh, biochemical imbalances. Mm-hmm. Um, I was abusing caffeine quite a bit. <laughs> Mm. And uh, I was using other stimulants like uh, ephedrine, you know, for uh, performance and fat loss, mm-hmm. which tends to make you pretty uh, nervous and jumpy. You know, caffeine can be, you know, it's the drug of choice for most people. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, um, yeah, no, I, you know, I'd be very temperamental. Uh, I, uh, I was uh, somewhat abusive with my language and so forth. Uh, I've really cleaned up all that stuff because I realized just how self-harming it is and just how harmful it is to everyone else. When you harm someone else, you're definitely harming yourself. Huh. Yeah, I noticed you don't cuss at all. Is there, I hadn't realized it was a conscious decision. I, I like to say I could fuck this or that now and again, you know, to really emphasize a point, but mm-hmm. I think it's overused, you know? Oh, yeah. It's way overused, you know? Yeah. If you want me- Really good point. You can throw a little cuss word in there now and again, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you know, you, it, it's it's not a good habit because we are setting into motion energy with every word we speak. That's so true. A vibratory pattern, and this is something that I don't uh, wish to. Uh, you know, I don't want to send out that kind of negativity because that's what you get back. That's true. So I try to monitor my words, you know. Say what you mean, mean what you say, watch what you say. Mm. Also a very yogic headspace without without pigeonholing it. Very ancient thing. But as far as the esoteric part, I just kind of keep it to myself. And I've noticed. You know, if they want to know, I'll I'll let them know what my ideas are uh, uh, about that kind of thing. You know, I... I, I learned, I, I read a book when I was in the military. I was going through a pretty tough time, and it was called As a Man Thinketh. Mm-hmm. It was this new thought movement. And basically, they were talking about, you know, the power of the spoken word. Mm. Because, you know, you get a thought, and then you put the thought into word, and then the word becomes an energy form. And 
what you're putting out is what you're getting back, basically, from the universe. Yep. It's a hard thing for people to, to gather because a lot of people that don't understand this principle feel so helpless. Yeah, it's a bitter pill. And you, you know, you do have a certain level of free choice. And there are, there, you do have a certain amount of control. There's many things out of our control, mm. but there's a lot of things in our control. And one of them is the way you speak and act and treat other people. So true. That's, that's. And, you know, and I do a lot of health practices that are very unusual. You know? Like what? That, uh, pardon? Like what? Um, well, I mean, without freaking out your audience too much, uh, I've become a big advocate of coffee enemas. Oh, no. no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, sure. They're, they're amazing. Incredibly healing. Mm-hmm. Many, many people have suffered all sorts of toxic imbalances in their body mm-hmm. from the food we've eaten, from the air we breathe, from the water we drink. So true. And we have a lot of mineral imbalances. One way one can find out is by having a hair mineral analysis. Huh. And you, what you find is, like what I found, I had uh, mercury and arsenic. Whoa. Uh, toxic level of aluminum. Wow. Uh, cadmium. You know, probably from all that air travel and all that stuff. You know? mm. and, and goodness knows from when I was a child, my father used to spray all sorts of pesticides and herbicides. He was quite the gardener. Mm-hmm. You know, he was even using DDT back in the day, man. Okay. Yeah. Now, you know, we, my brother and I are very much exposed to this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, all these toxins are stored deep in the tissues. And then, you know, sometimes when people diet uh, and they start to, uh, the, the fat releases some of that energy into the bloodstream, you'll get like a toxic dump and people feel really lousy and they'll get headaches, they'll get sick. They assume it's from not eating, but it's actually from the stored toxins being released in their body. Mm-hmm. So coffee enemas get r- really help cleanse the liver mm-hmm. and get rid of a lot of this type of toxic material. Fantastic. What other uh, unconventional practices do you use? Uh, I use the neti pot and the oh, tongue yeah. scraping. Oh, game changer. Yeah. yeah. So, and I used to use uh, oil pulling mm-hmm. in the mouth, but I switched to oral coffee holds. Huh. What's that? You hold a diluted form of coffee in the cheek and gum. And it's very good for the nervous system. Coffee is not a particularly good thing to drink. But when you do coffee enemas and oral coffee holds in the mouth, mm. uh, it has a very, very uh, healing effect. Coffee can be quite good. It, it's diluted. I'm only taking four tablespoons mixed in a quart jar of water. A quart jar for your listener would be, what is that, uh, eight, 800 milligrams? 800 milligrams, yeah, that makes sense. I think, uh, yeah, I mixed 200 milligrams gotcha. with uh, about 900, uh, with, let's see, 700 milligrams of water. 
I'm converting from houses to uh, milligrams. So you don't drink coffee anymore at all now? Uh, I do. Just one cup. Okay. One cup a day. I, oh, mix, I mix it with uh, mechathin. Mechathin is uh, sunflower mechathin. It, it's basically the best source of choline, which is a neurotransmitter. Huh. And it really increases mental sharpness and mental awareness. Uh, mechathin, people can look it up. It has a lot of really good uh, properties for the nervous system. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I'll, I'll have a single cup of filtered coffee mixed with a tablespoon of mechathin every morning. Amazing. Here's something I've been, and I want to respect your time. I know we've been talking for a while, but I do, there's, there's something I've been super curious about for a while now. Um, you took a lot of a lot of hits on um, the Joe Rogan podcast when you tried to talk about your um, beliefs in astrology, uh, specifically. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, uh, uh, Joe Rogan was actually a friend of mine. Yes, he was a really sure. nice. Yeah. And he's a character. He's a character. Oh, yeah. But he got, this, he got into this thing. I, I'm not sure exactly why. He became like a debunker. Mm. Kind of like, uh, oh, I don't know. Who's that that duo that was uh, that did that show, Bullshit? They were two Las Vegas magicians and comedians. Penn and Teller. Huh. You know, they do a lot of debunking. Gotcha. Joe got into it. I'm not sure. Well, I think he got embarrassed. Uh, Bulletproof Coffee was kind of exposed to be a complete fraud. Hmm. And he that was one of his sponsors. And, and then he started, you know, thinking that might be a good way for his show to go. Interesting. And, you know, he'll get, he'll get some very interesting people that believe in all sorts of crazy theories like Flat Earth. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Yeah, he gave me a hard time about the astrology, and he wouldn't get off of it either. Oh, and then when I mentioned the aura, you know, there's some scientist who claims there's no such thing as an aura. Mm -hmm. A material reductionist approach. Yeah, exactly, you know, and these scientists, just like we can't prove there's God, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just because they can't prove it with their limited senses and limited science doesn't mean that it does not exist. Um, I'll have you know that's uh, that conversation though. Uh, just so you know that it wasn't worth nothing. That's how I uh, started. To, that's how I met Robert myself. I, I I talked to him myself. He's he's been a game changer for me. Yeah, he, he's really good he at is what he does. Absolutely brilliant. And he's like had their own personal uh, philosopher. Absolutely. I mean, as strong as he's just a tool he's using, but the things he says, I mean, it's therapy, really. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I uh, I learned about him through Teresa, my my companion, my life companion. For real? And uh, huh. he had been using him for years and years and years, and I was skeptical. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was, he actually proved himself to me. And... You know, he, he knew all about me, even though I gave him zero information other than birth date, time yep. of birth, and place of birth. Yep, that's and, um, yeah, he read my life story to me. And then um, mm. I um, I never had a bad seminar in all the time that I traveled. And I did many workshops, seminars, classes, uh, because I always based it on what you know, Robert's 
uh, ideas about a, a, a good date and time as far mm -hmm. as energetically. Yeah, he's really good with that. I had one that was kind of trying, but it wasn't too bad. And I had one in China that was like, that was more because of translation. Mm. You know, I had to use a translator and then she had to translate back and it was very tedious, you know. Mm -hmm. And then uh, one in uh, Holland, in uh, the Netherlands, it was a little uncomfortable, but for the most part, you know, the clients were happy. So, <laughs> but I, I, you know, they're the only two I can remember out of hundreds that didn't go well. Every flight, and imagine all the flights I did over 14 years. Wow. I mean, hundreds of flights. Never had one go bad. So you just uh, call him every, before every flight, or how do you do it? Cause... He would just give the best dates and times for travel. Perfect. Yeah. You know, I, I, I remember one time in Athens, we had a flight that was canceled. Mm -hmm. and had to sit around for the next one. And one time in Vienna, it was our fault. We showed up a day early. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've actually done that myself once in, in Indonesia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but it's like, oh, man, we got to go back and get another hotel now. <laughs> yeah. But other than that, uh, you know, that's remarkable. That's a remarkable record, and I owe it to Robert about that. And... Uh, even in my personal life and decisions, he, he really he really helped quite a bit. Mm -hmm. It's incredible the amount of knowledge that man possesses. Yeah, I mean he, he he's quite a student himself about Indeed. many 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 subjects. You know, mm -hmm. you can talk to him about anything. You know, pretty much even related topics or even uh, health or I'm sure he knows a lot about music. Oh yeah, very much so. We've talked about music quite a bit, actually. It's some very interesting input he's given me. Yeah. Have you ever actually seen the guy? I've never seen him. No, he's very uh, private. You know, I've always tried to imagine what he looks like. Me too. What, what What's your picture like? I I, I see Dumbledore. Uh, exactly what it's like because he almost admitted that uh, this person looked very much like him. Uh, early on, there was a book called The Zen of Running huh. by Fred oh man, who is this guy? I forget the name of the author, but you can still find this book. In fact, you can probably download it for free. Hmm. It's a real old book. At the time, I was a PE major in wrestling, and I just didn't pay much attention to it. I just kind of cast it off as so much hippie drivel. Uh-huh, <laughs> uh-huh. And I later realized, wow, this is a very deep and profound book on running. And the person on it is this tall, lanky, lean runner with uh, a beard and uh, long hair and a kerchief around his head. And it kind of looks like Jesus almost. Tall and lean and lanky. And I know Robert's very tall. How do you know that? He lived in a camper van exactly like mine. Huh. And Teresa figured it out somehow. He, he gave his height away. He was very tall. Huh. Well, we were trying to figure out. I lived in a, uh, a Mercedes camper van that had been outfitted by Westphalia. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Robert lived in the same exact van. It was called James Cook. It was a German version. Mm, gotcha. And mine was more of an Americanized version that had imported. It had been imported from Dusseldorf. And then Dodge put 
it's badging. A Dodge, a Dodge Sprinter is a basically a Mercedes. And oh. they put the Dodge badging on. And then Airstream put like a, a bunch of huh. and sold it. And but the James Cook camper van and the Dodge Sprinter West Failure are basically identical vans. And he lived in one in Germany, drove all around Europe for uh, a bunch of years. And I lived in mine for about three years here in the United States. Huh. And it was through that van, we used to talk van talk all the time, that I realized he's really tall. Not bad. So so this is uh, not a coincidence, the fact that no one really knows what he looks like. He really intends to keep it that way? Yeah. Hmm. Yep. I think he's smart. Indeed. I mean, why, you know, why base your ideas on what he looks like? Yeah, I completely yeah. agree. It's it's kind of v- mildly uh, in alignment to this the philosophy of this podcast as well. You know, listen instead of watch. Yeah, he's an enigma, but uh, I, I would recommend and anyone listening out there want a really good reading and a good astrologer, go to starcenter.com. Yeah, I would actually second that. It's, I mean, astrology is a tricky one, right? There's just so much yeah, BS that's I mean, gone around in its name. So much. But, uh, you know, I have a friend that does Chinese astrology too. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's real interesting because he pretty much came up with many of the same ideas that Robert did. Exactly. That's another thing. So I know this guy is pretty good. Because mm-hmm. I was born in 52, which is the year of the dragon. So uh, I'm a yang water dragon nice and uh it's interesting the what he told me from a chinese astrological point of view and it matched matched up very well with many of robert's ideas too yep uh i work with another therapist who uses a very different modality and it's very interesting uh, and needless to say they've never met each other but sometimes they've used like identical words to describe a specific situation i mean it's quite eerie at times really yeah and i uh, i do believe in signs and symbols true and i do believe very much in a hierarchy of uh ethereal beings ether mm. you know fine matter beings and uh for example angels mm-hmm that most people in Christianity are familiar with. Mm-hmm. Many talk about angels, but there's there's other fine matter beings also. Absolutely. And uh, I, I believe that uh, these fine matter beings are here to to help us. There's also some negative ones too. You've got to be careful. But uh, Yeah, it makes sense. But yeah. It's the kind of thing, uh, I mean, um, well... I'm trying to find the right words to formulate the question before I let you go. Um, there's a lot of talk, and this is like the last question I want to ask you. Um, needless to say, you're probably very familiar with the whole hashtag of toxic masculinity and um, this, you know, the political correctness of um, using words like fat. Um, and I'm doing a crap job of asking this question right now. But my point is, um, in this day and age, what? how do we even define health authentically? Well, part of it, a big part of it would be... Especially as a man. Sorry, especially as a man. Uh, are we talking about physical health, mental health? Oh, you got me there. 
uh, can, can you even separate the two? Yeah, physical health is easy to find. You're not sick, and you are not in pain, and you walk around actually not being aware of your body too much at all. Mm. That's really a good sign of physical health. You're not aware of your body oh, all that man. much. You don't, you're not constantly aware of this ache or this hurt or this pain. That makes so much sense. Or this problem or that problem. That would be physical health. From mental, emotional point of view is how much conflict are you in during the day? If you're in a lot of conflicts, arguments, fights, uh, if, if you're finding yourself getting into a lot of negative emotional states and angry, well, you've got some work to do. There's, you know, Obviously, your thoughts, you've you got to start to monitor and govern your thoughts. So, yeah. You know? Uh, I... I I, you know, I, this whole concept of toxic masculinity, um, yeah, I'm not sure quite what to, to make of it. You know, I, I heard this one guy, uh, you know, I listened to the podcast myself, and he was saying that, uh, you know, uh, a man should be a dangerous man. You should be able to fend for yourself. You should be able to take someone's life with your bare hands. Mm. But you choose never to do that. Yeah, and that's such a huge difference. Because a, a weak man, right? Uh, let's say a guy that is harmless and unable to, you know, he's weak and he's not physically strong. You know, he has no choice but to be harmless. But a man that is dangerous and makes that conscious choice, that's what I consider someone that is a good person. In my experience, um, the second example you cited, the one where uh, you know the, that physical ability is not part of his arsenal, they tend to overcompensate with other weaponry, mental weaponry, psychological weaponry. Yeah, the whole woke movement has it basically is very cruel. It's people that uh, talk about toxic. <laughs> You know, they, they basically want to control people's thoughts and ideas. And it's kind of like, how dare you? It's almost like people will go and look for things to get outraged about, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like they'll go online and anything that is different than their philosophy, they're, they're going to get outraged and want to create a big stir. Yeah. It's like, you know, that's toxic. It's much more toxic than a guy being fit and able to handle himself and being confident, you know. I would tend to agree. I got into this argument once, well, discussion anyway, with a friend of mine who... Uh, FYI, I was too embarrassed to tell you, I do practice jiu-jitsu. I'm a green-white belt, have been for uh, for three years now because uh, the pandemic hit and I couldn't go as often. Uh, that's a whole different story. But I've, I've actually been practicing martial arts pretty much all my life. I'm crap at it. I'm really not a very good student. But it's something I've always felt an inherent need to have a relationship with. And I've had this conversation with so many musicians, because uh, musicians will usually be the you know quote-unquote sensitive type, about how they think even training in a martial art is violent. And I can't, and I can only speak for myself here. The fact of the matter is, the only my best chance at not being violent is when I'm training, because I am 
acutely aware of the vulnerabilities of a human body, and I would never, ever, ever want to get into a fight. Well, here's the, here's the thing about these non-violent types. Yeah. They couldn't be violent if they wanted to. Yeah. It's not even a choice for them. Right. It's not a choice. They right. have to be meek and mild because they have never developed themselves. They, they, so it's not even, you know, they're not good or better than anyone else. That's the one. That's the one. They're unable to make that decision. Yes. Selling that helplessness is something good. That's the part I think uh, that I struggle with the most. I don't want to be helpless. And I make a conscious choice not to use my martial arts. Yes. And that is the difference. I do it out of a conscious choice and awareness. Mm. They do it because they have no choice. And that doesn't make them good at all. That just makes them weak. Yeah. By the way, I'd like to invite you to my Greek Odyssey training camp on the island of Ikaria. When is that? End of June. That sounds amazing. Yeah, you can you find the page to sign up. You should come. I would love to. I basically have a classic Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. Uh-huh. The stand-up self-defense of Master Elliot Gracie, who was a very small, wiry, 140-pound guy who created the whole Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu movement. He was the guy that changed Japanese jiu-jitsu into Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Mm-hmm. And I trained with him and all his sons and some of his grandsons. And it is fantastic martial art for not just being able to handle yourself, but really good fitness, too. Absolutely. I can second that. You know, it teaches you to move. So true. You know? And I think you'd really like it, Korea. It's one of the five blue zones, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, I hear of it. One of the areas of the world where people have uh, very, very long lives. Mm. And it's a week, uh, six days. And we cover different aspects of jujitsu, but we also cover mobility and strength training, you know, for being, enabling you to continue doing martial arts late in life. Are white belts uh, uh, okay there too? White belts would be, it's a great entry level for mm. white belts. And I, 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 last year I had probably half the people there were white belts. Well, confession. Because we go over, we, you know, because really the basics are what sets the tone for your entire martial arts career. So true. And unless you have a really strong foundation, you know, you'll... And it's shocking to me how many even black belts don't even know the self-defense aspect of jujitsu. Yep. They're stuck on the sport, the points, you know, and many of them don't even know takedowns or throws or anything, you know, defenses Mm -hmm. against punches or kicks or, you know, defenses about being uh, grabbed from behind. It's, (laughs) It's shocking to me. And these are black belts, you know. It's kind of like the old, uh, I specialize in ground fighting, but I can't take it to the ground. (laughs) (laughs) It's not uncommon in BJJ, especially in Europe. It it has quite a reputation of of being a sport, but um, unless the guys study judo or wrestling, a lot of times they're pretty one-dimensional. Yeah, I I have. I think I kind of know what you... I mean, I mean, I'm not qualified to really comment on that, but as from from a student perspective, I can intimately relate to that. Actually, well, Jocko Jock, Wilnick said it perfect. You know, 
If I want to defend myself against a boxer or a kickboxer or a karate man, I can run away. I got two feet. Mm. I don't have to engage him. Mm. You know, if a guy wants to punch me or kick me, I can pretty much, you know, evade him and even run. But when someone grabs me and gets a hold of me, that's a whole different thing. Yep. And that's where Judas comes in. And now the self-defense becomes very important. And I would say this is especially true of women. Mm. Women you know, need to know how to uh, escape and to release from someone trying to grab and hold and control and things like this. So do you have like a separate approach you recommend women to take when they do this? Uh, well, there's things that happen to women that do not happen to men. Sure. Almost, okay, who assaults women? Men. Why? Sexual, usually. Mm -hmm. Or maybe just an abuse control thing. You mm -hmm. know, like men grabbing their wife by the hair and beating her, this type of thing is... Mm -hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, it happens worldwide. Unfortunately, yes. And women can learn to deal with all of that. They can learn to you know, escape mm. and stop the things that happen. Like, for example, guys don't grab other guys by the wrist or by the arm against their will, right? Oh, that's so true. But they do against women. So, you know, learning how to escape, you know, from someone grasping your arm or your wrist to pull you somewhere where you don't want to go. Mm -hmm. Whereas with the guys, kind of, you know, it doesn't happen. Guys don't grab each other by the wrist. Uh, a majority of women who are murdered, and it's, you know, usually when women are raped or murdered, it's usually someone they know. It's rarely just some... Ran, random guy, you know, mm -hmm. uh, they're strangled. High percentages are choked. So a huge part of jujitsu self-defense for women is escaping various throat grabs, hair grabs, wrist grabs, you know, people holding from behind, that type of thing. Guys too. But with us, it's a little bit different. Mm -hmm. Guys approach another man a little bit different yeah usually it's a sucker punch yeah would you ever start a fight or would you only finish them i would start a fight if it was warranted you know if if, if i saw someone really in trouble like uh, uh a guy trying to abduct a woman in a parking lot or something or you know, someone calling for help i would certainly intervene oh yeah sure that's but if you would you um i mean that that's almost like a different role altogether But have you ever found yourself in the situation where, uh, you know, some guy acts like a complete moron and you know you could, like, really kick his ass and you didn't? Uh, well, usually I try to walk away as much as I can. Yeah, I, I, I will. I'll turn away. But if someone's threatening me and I know that it's uh, a possible attack is imminent, I might get the first strike in there. Gotcha. So you do strike. Oh, yeah. I mean, open hand slaps are fantastic. This all part of the jiu-jitsu uh, repertoire. Mm -hmm. uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu has many strikes. We have uh, a front kick, uh, a low side kick. There are elbows and knees. There are, we use head butts. And 
a lot of open hand techniques, palm heels and and uh, and and uh, knife hand mm-hmm. and slap. Very much part of Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and that was part of the original Japanese jiu-jitsu as well. See, I had no idea that there were strikes and kicks in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Okay. Yeah, it was a very complete martial art. But you know, unfortunately, I have run out of time. I could talk you forever yeah no 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 i apologize i'm just being really greedy right now because you know i know for (laughs) i know for a fact i could talk to you for another three hours and you would just keep giving me gold nuggets you could actually totally charge me for this at this point so uh well we'll uh we'll we'll arrange for another podcast i'd love that and i'm definitely gonna keep your dates in Greece in mind because I will be back in Europe then and it's been on my bucket list to train with you for a while now and I can't think of a better teacher to do my jiu-jitsu basics if I were again yeah I guarantee you would have a good time and Icaria is a beautiful little island it's not developed like the other islands it's not like a big party island it's still pretty still pretty rusty I will definitely keep that in mind um, is there did I miss out on anything is there anything you'd like our audiences to uh, know about uh, the website is uh, maxwellsc.com mm-hmm. and uh, yeah uh, I have a lot of video uh, downloads and things that people Indeed. I'm in the process of transferring from uh, another website to a new website and Really, the web designer's taking uh, his good old time <laughs> uh-huh. to get it together. But uh, you know, I, I have a lot of really good information out there. And uh, follow me on Twitter. Mm-hmm. I have two Facebooks. There's like a, a personal page that I just use, you know, just to fool around with. And then I have a professional page. But I, I do a lot of posts on Twitter. Really, I will. Uh, definitely. Well, FYI, uh, I'm not Twitter, not Twitter, Instagram. I get them mixed up. Okay, okay. Inst- okay. Inst- yes. well, I post a lot of videos and what I'm up to, and you know, yep, exercises, diet advice, and you know, just all sorts of yes. Stuff. And it is absolutely worth your time for my audiences. I cannot, I cannot stress enough. Steve Maxwell is the guy to follow when it comes to your health. Yes. Your fitness, there's just yeah. I mean, um, when you're when you're as mobile and strong and just you know in the kind of headspace you are in at seventy, it's just uh, you know you know this is this is the person you want to be taking advice from because there are so many younger trainers out there who are just at such different phases of their lives and there's so much random information flowing around on the internet so much of it isn't even you know referenced or tested but uh, this is like steve maxwell is the one guy i can comfortably endorse with and he like totally stake my reputation on it well i appreciate that very yeah. much no we appreciate you steve i, I can't even begin to uh, thank you uh, for this opportunity. Thank you so much for coming on. And uh, as you can see, I'm struggling to let go because I can think of another 20 questions I could ask you, but I will respect your time. So thanks again. Well, let's do it again. Let's Sounds good. Again. Sounds good to me. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm down. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Gratitude from the bottom of my heart for listening to the very end. 
please consider taking a minute to subscribe to our shows so you know when the next episode is out. This is a labor of love, one I hope snowballs into one that's sustainable in its attempt to support independent thought and authentic relating. And having you as a regular member of our audience is what makes that a realistic prospect. Much love and talk soon. Just another voice out in the 